KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Osher Lifelong Learning Institute, hosting an open house to learn about the upcoming classes and seminars, member benefits, and meet the volunteer leadership team. Saturday, March 30th. Registration at extendedstudies.ucsd.edu slash O-L-L-I. This year's Gay Pride celebrations brace for threats from hate groups. A minority of Americans are really stoking undue fear and violence targeting the LGBT community. I'm M.G. Perez with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Some hope for seniors who need help paying the rent. That extra $500 takes them from being literally on the cusp of homelessness or falling through the cracks onto the street and maybe being able to get it by. San Diego cops who say religion keeps them from COVID testing and high school students take a hike in support of asylum seekers. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. Members of the LGBTQ plus community are celebrating their pride this month with parades and festivals across the country. Some of those celebrations have been disrupted with threats of violence by groups opposing the community. Over the weekend in Idaho, 31 men identified with the white nationalist Patriot Front were arrested and charged with conspiracy to incite a riot near a local pride event there. One of them allegedly a man from the San Diego chapter of that group. Here in San Diego, the pride celebration happens in July with plans for a full in-person return next month. Joining us now to talk more about this is the executive director of San Diego Pride, Fernando Lopez. Fernando, welcome to Midday. Hello. So let's start off with some history. Why does San Diego celebrate Pride in July when most of the country is celebrating right now? It actually goes back to a conversation that Pride organizers had in the 80s when there weren't a lot of LGBT organizations or as many activists. And so one of the things that we realized politically was that if we all had our Pride celebrations or events at the same time, it made it harder for activists to go from city to city to sort of build their lists and build political power. And so if if you actually see there, you know, we're not all on the same weekend, we're not all on the same month. And that is really about building political power for our community. And when those decisions were being had in the 80s, we said, well, we'll take July because June gloom was, uh, you know, sort of unpredictable. And if you go back, you'll see pictures of like Chris Shaw and Christine Kehoe shoveling out like our festival area because we were almost rained out for several years. So uh, the weather's better in July. So we picked July. So with the return of thousands of people this year to the parade route along University and Hillcrest and the festival in Balboa Park, you are not only preparing for health safety, but also for threats of violence. This year, we're obviously seeing a hyper-polarized political climate where a minority of Americans are really stoking undue fear and violence targeting the LGBT community. So I see what's happening across the country, but I do know that I'm very proud of the relationships that we have with local regional and federal law enforcement agencies um, every single year to keep us as safe as possible at those events. So we mentioned the arrests in Idaho near a pride event over the weekend by men charged with conspiracy to incite a riot. 
you have been monitoring several other incidents around the country. Tell us about that. The dramatic increase in hate crimes and targeted violence towards our community has risen across the last several years. I think we're all very familiar with the rise in the targeting and murder of Black trans women and trans people, but in particular, Black trans women. And so, you know, while we have made a ton of progress in this country, the reality is that for many LGBT Americans across the country, one, we, we simply do not have equal protection under the law. Uh, still, to this day, we're not equal citizens in the United States. And two, the lived experience that they have enduring discrimination can vary depending on the neighborhood, the city, the region, or the state that they're living in. And so while it's wonderful and beautiful to come and celebrate who we are, there's a really intentional effort to target members of our community right now by white supremacist groups. And Fernando, there seems to be a concerted effort on social media against the gay community, particularly an account called Libs of TikTok, which I think is a misnomer because it's actually a Twitter account. Libs of TikTok um, are actually across multiple platforms, and I, I'm actually not familiar if they did start on TikTok. I believe they have a TikTok account. They're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And what they're doing is really sort of stoking their base, highlighting sort of these myths around our community and targeting us, highlighting these events that are happening in hopes that they will be targeted by these different groups. And I think it's really important right now that our elected officials, our law enforcement agencies, and particularly these corporations who house these uh, social media platforms need to look at deplatforming these individuals. It is very clear the harm that they are trying to impart onto our community, a very vulnerable, marginalized community. And so the responsibility ultimately lies with these elected officials, law enforcement, and the corporations to deplatform these folks. I mean, it's completely unacceptable that they are using these platforms to target individual activists and events and organizations. I mean, they're putting our community under threat. So with your in-person return in July, what can we expect from San Diego Pride uh, celebration this year? The theme is justice with joy. Tell me more. There's a big discussion in the international pride community about what our pride organizations intended to be. Uh, the reality is that our pride movement, our pride organizations and events are really commemorating the Stonewall riots that occurred in 1969. And year after year, those celebrations have grown, but there's a really interesting conversation happening in the LGBT community about, are we here to protest? Or are we here to celebrate? And it is one of our core beliefs as an organization that we can do both, that we can have this beautiful celebration and act of joy. You know, when you're a targeted, marginalized community, the mere act of celebrating and being in love and holding the hand of your partner is an act of defiance. It is an act of protest. And so there is a beautiful act of justice just in experiencing joy itself. And so that's sort of what these pride organizations have evolved into. But the other thing that I'm really proud that our organization does is we directly engage in that advocacy work. We're a year-round organization with more than 40 different programs engaged in uh, voter turnout, leadership and capacity building for our community, and direct advocacy work. And so justice with joy is absolutely who we are as an organization and as a community. And after three years being apart, we really want to emphasize that. Fernando, what is your greatest hope for the community this year? My greatest hope for our community is that we are able to celebrate, um, that we are able to experience joy that is so often denied our community. 
And I really hope that our elected officials, these corporations wake up and stop investing in this anti-LGBTQ legislation. It's leading to violence towards our community and it's time that these corporations stop investing in anti-LGBTQ legislators. Uh, it's time that we pass the Equality Act so our community is finally equal under the law and that we're simply able to live our lives free from fear and that we are able to experience love and joy. We've been talking with Fernando Lopez, Executive Director of San Diego Pride. Fernando, thank you and happy Pride. Thank you so much. Happy Pride. Among the projects approved last night as part of the new San Diego City budget is a proposal called the Housing Stability Fund. It's a monthly subsidy aimed at keeping seniors and others who qualify in their homes and not becoming part of the ranks of San Diego's homeless. Supporters say up to $500 a month in rental assistance will prevent more misery on the streets and will even save the city money in the long run. Joining me is Paul Downey, President and CEO of Serving Seniors. And Paul, welcome to the program. Great to be with you, Maureen. Thank you. Now, this new city subsidy follows recommendations Serving Seniors made last fall. Tell us about that. Well, we had done a comprehensive needs assessment on older adult homelessness in San Diego, and we interviewed about 400 folks who were either experiencing homelessness, had been homeless, or were on the cusp. And one of the major findings was that a relatively small subsidy would make the difference between being housed and unhoused. And in fact, that $500 or less uh, popped up in three quarters of the people said that was the difference in not becoming homeless in the first place. Do we know how the subsidy will work? Well, the, the de details are still to be released by the city. But what we do know is that it's a two-year program and it'll be a $500 a month rental subsidy, uh, presumably paid directly to, to the landlord, uh, so that people can then have additional dollars to get by. And that's going to be particularly important for seniors because many of them are living on just a couple hundred dollars a month after they paid their rent. Uh, so we're, we're hoping that it'll be targeting to the most needy, the lowest income folks, uh, but uh, we still need to see what the city's, city is going to do. We do hope that they will take quick action. I mean, the need is right now, and uh, we hope it isn't... Uh, six, eight, 10 month process to get this thing going. Now, the new subsidy extends to other people who may qualify for it, but seniors are meant to be the main beneficiaries of this home stability fund. Can you tell us what some seniors are going through trying to keep their housing? Well, we see it every single day. I mean, even the, the single room occupancy hotels in downtown San Diego, which is the cheapest market rate uh, housing that's out there, is now $850, $900 a month for a 100-square-foot room and a shared bathroom down the hall. And 85% of the folks that we serve at Serving Seniors live on less than $1,100 a month. So you can do the arithmetic. Uh, folks are trying to live on a, you know, $200, maybe $250 a month after paying their rent and finding it almost impossible, especially given the inflation that we're seeing. So that extra $500 takes them from being literally on the cusp of homelessness or falling through the cracks onto the street and maybe being able to get it by. I mean, they're not going to get by in, in luxurious fashion, 
but they can survive. And, and that's the intent of this is the keeping people housed versus unhoused. Uh, we still need to work you know, towards getting a more optimal solution, but at, this is at its most basic level, keeping somebody in their home. And in the most recent point in time survey of homelessness in San Diego County, we found out that seniors make up the fastest growing segment of the homeless population. Was that a surprise to you? Not at all. Uh, we, we've known this for, for some time. And in fact, one out of four folks on the street here in San Diego County are over the age of 55. And we've been seeing that trend for for years. And that's actually the thing that prompted us to do the needs assessment in the first place is we were frankly frustrated that older adults were not getting the attention that they needed and deserved uh, by policymakers. And, and we, we wanted to come up with a way to say, hey, this is real and something needs to be done. I can share my own anecdotal story. I was out doing the points in time count that morning and I spoke to 25 people or interview 25 people, 22 of whom were seniors. The oldest was 77, and most were in their early 70s. And the vast majority were economically homeless. I mean, there was some economic trigger that caused them to fall into homelessness, whether it was loss of a job, an illness, or simply living in an apartment where they couldn't keep up with the rent. But it was all economically driven. I think there was maybe one gentleman who had maybe some mental health issues. And so that's one of the key points here is that we can actually move these folks more quickly through the system because if it's an economic issue, there's a solution, which is money. But compared to somebody who has severe mental health issues or drug or alcohol issues, you know, you've got to deal with that before you even get to the economic side. So hope here is that we can target seniors, get them in and get them out and permanent supportive housing as, as quickly as possible. So as you say, this is not a new problem. Why do you think the city is supporting this subsidy now? Well, because I, I, I like to think it's because of the, you know, serving seniors being a catalyst and many other advocates out there being catalysts and saying, hey, we got to do something. I mean, the needs assessment didn't lie. It showed hard data that said we have a severe problem. And so, you know, we, we, we met with all of them. Uh, we've met with the Board of Supervisors and our elected officials and uh, hard to, to turn away when confronted with real hard data. And fortunately, I, you know, they have embraced this and are committed to doing something about it. I mean, the reception from our elected leaders has been very positive. Uh, and it's a 180 degree turnaround, I think, where we were, where, you know, we felt like we were jumping up and down on a daily basis to try to get attention. Now we have their attention. And we hope this is just the first of many steps to address older adult homelessness specifically, but also to do a better job just on homelessness here in San Diego. Uh, what we've been doing you know, over the years clearly isn't working. Uh, you know, we're, the problem continues to increase. And so we do need new approaches like a shallow rental subsidy, like a dedicated shelter for older adults. Uh, we need employment programs for older adults to help you know, give them some additional income, but we need to do something different than what we've been doing. Now, there's a similar subsidy proposal being studied by San Diego County, isn't there? Yes. Uh, there, uh, a few months ago, they, they voted to direct their staff 
to look at a shallow rental subsidy. It was led by supervisors Anderson and Lawson Reamer. And uh, what we understand is it's going to come back in August. It will have uh, similar characteristics as the city. Uh, they're looking at a $500 a month subsidy targeting uh, you know, seniors who live on less than 30% of area median income, which is about $26,000, $27,000 a year, and whose rent burden is 50% or greater of their total income. And we think that's the right approach. That, that targets the most in need uh, and gets the, you know, the idea is to prevent, I mean, them from becoming homeless in the first place. And that actually is a new concept in all of this. Most of the programs, if you look at them, you know, 99% of them are reactive when, once somebody has ended up on the streets. This is a proactive, preventative approach to keep it from occurring in the first place, which is obviously better for the person, but also better from a financial standpoint because it's much less expensive than reacting, you know, once they're on the street. Even with the new city rental subsidy, you see a problem because of the housing shortage. And tell us how the housing shortage affects seniors in San Diego. Well, housing has been a problem for a long period of time, and it's only gotten worse through the pandemic and now through this inflationary period. I mean, you're looking at median price for a one-bedroom apartment of $2,400 a month. Well, we have seniors you know, who are making $1,100 a month with their social security. Uh, I mean, they're not even halfway to being able to afford the rent. You're looking at years-long waiting lists to get Section 8 vouchers, which would help them uh, be able to afford their rent. Uh, we're looking at affordable housing uh, complexes. I mean, serving seniors, we, we have several, and there are waiting lists to get in, uh, oftentimes years uh, for folks to get into affordable housing. So we absolutely need more affordable housing, but we also need to focus on more intermediate types of things because affordable housing is the solution, but it takes a long time. Uh, you know, our, our projects take sometimes could take five to seven years from start to moving folks in. And that's just because of the nature of the way the funding process works here in the state of California. So we need other options. Uh, you know, we need to look at shared housing. You need to look at accessory dwelling units or granny flats as they're known. Um, you know, we need to, we need to do all of these things to ensure that people have an affordable place to live, um, or what ends up happening is they end up becoming homeless. Uh, and that's obviously not something that we want. Do you know when the new home stability fund will be ready for people to apply? We don't. Uh, they, I'm, we are pushing them hard to say, hey, the problem is right now. Uh, I mean, we, every single day at Serving Seniors, I mean, we, we have homeless seniors walking in our doors looking for help. Uh, looking for assistance. So we see people even in affordable housing that can't afford the rents. So the pressure is great. The council's approved it, and we hope that they will you know, cut through the red tape and get this up and operating as quickly as possible uh, so that uh, we can start helping seniors, but also disabled and youth who need, who need this assistance. And also to be able to just demonstrate that it is a cost-effective approach uh, because long-term, we need to get a sustainable funding source uh, for this. And uh, really, that needs to come from the federal and state level, 
And I think if we can demonstrate that, you know, it makes financial sense that there's ROI on this investment, I think we can do that. I've been speaking with Paul Downey, President and CEO of Serving Seniors. Paul, thank you very much. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Maureen. KPBS On Demand is supported by the Museum of Contemporary Art San Diego, offering visitors to the La Jolla campus special exhibitions, collection galleries, coastal vistas, seaside dining, and more. MCASD.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez in for Jade Heineman. Hundreds of San Diego police officers got to skip the COVID vaccine because they said it was against their religion. But that exemption came with a requirement that they test for COVID regularly. Now, KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser says some of those officers say their religion also prevents them from taking COVID tests. Officers told the city on religious exemption forms that the Bible instructs them not to put cotton swabs in their nose. My beliefs stand for keeping my body clean and free from such unnecessary drugs and chemicals, one officer wrote. The phrase, I trust in God's perfect design of my body, was repeated 19 times in the records obtained by KPBS. We previously reported on many officers using the exact same answers on their forms and copying those answers from form letters on the internet. About 10% of the police records KPBS received, the city is providing them on a rolling basis, makes this religious argument against using swab tests. The city's Human Resources Department is still deciding how to handle those requests. But in the meantime, the officers are still on the job and are unvaccinated and not getting tests. The officers claim that the swabs contain a cancer-causing chemical called ethylene oxide, but they don't. Realistically, there just is no evidence indicating that that would occur. Dr. David Pride is an infectious disease specialist at UC San Diego. He says ethylene oxide is not actually present on the swabs. It's used as a gas to sterilize them. The use of ethylene oxide is not new. It's something that's been going on for many, many years. So if these were causing cancer in people, we would absolutely know about it now. In fact, he says any police officer who's gotten an influenza test probably used a swab sterilized with ethylene oxide. Still, officers argued the Bible says they shouldn't take COVID tests. Some wrote, 1 Corinthians 6.19.20 states, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? It really strains credulity that this would have any application there at all. Caroline's Purdue is a New Testament professor at Point Loma Nazarene University. These are are so outside of the range of what could have even possibly been imagined by the Apostle Paul when he's writing, or the Corinthian Christians as they're reading it. Many officers refusing COVID tests also compared their stance to keeping kosher. My belief in this regard is similar to the objection others have to eating unclean food, some officers wrote. 
Lyons Purdue says equating nasal swabs to unclean food is also not biblically sound. This one seems just a really difficult, a mismatch for what Paul is even addressing and, and the ways that Christians have applied kosher laws in a symbolic way to other aspects of life. It, ju- it just simply um, doesn't fit. As a Christian herself, Lyons Purdue sees a biblical argument for actually getting the COVID vaccine and testing to avoid spreading a virus to others. It strikes me that there's the, a, a great irony in using the scripture to seek to preserve even the slightest and really speculative possibility of, of minor harm to one's person. Dr. Pride at UC San Diego suggested there might be another reason some San Diego police officers are refusing COVID-19 swab tests. You know, who wants to get a swab stuck in their nose every week uh, to be tested? But I think they're kind of barking up the wrong tree with the idea that they're going to get cancer from just getting these nasal swabs. Joining me is KPBS investigative reporter Claire Tregesser. Claire, welcome. Thank you. About how many STPD officers asked for a religious exemption from regular COVID tests? Well, we don't have the exact number yet. Um, Basically, what happened is about a thousand city employees have asked for religious exemptions from COVID vaccines. And of those, the bulk were um, from the San Diego Police Department. And to get those exemptions, they have to write basically these essay questions um, on, on this form. And so we put in public records requests for their answers on that on those forms and we, we had to use a, a first amendment lawyer our kpbs lawyer to help us argue for those but we were able to get them the issue is that the city provides them basically on a rolling basis where they give about 50 a week so so far we have 361 um, all from the police department and of those 35 also said that they need to be uh, religiously exempted from the testing, not just the vaccines. Um, So it's about 10%, but we don't have all of the records yet. Obviously, we'll continue to update as we get more records. I didn't know that people could claim a religious exemption from testing. Has this worked? Are these police officers now exempt from taking COVID tests? Well, the city is still working on that. So so you're right that it, it wasn't a separate religious exemption. It was part of their uh, religious exemption form for the COVID vaccine. In those forms, some people said, oh, and by the way, I also, you know, cannot get a COVID test because that's also against my religion. Um, and so the city is is working on on those and they they haven't quite reached a resolution yet. Um, So for now, though, and this has been going on for quite some time, the police officers are still working, still on the job, not vaccinated and not getting tests as as the city works all of this out. What does the San Diego Police Department say about this? (laughs) They have nothing to say about this. I, I checked with them and they said, uh, declined to comment. Um, they say it's more of a personnel issue. Um, so, you know, then I, I've also reached out to the police union and they just don't get back to me. And I wanted to talk to Mayor Todd Gloria as well about this. And uh, through a spokeswoman, he also declined to comment. So um, no one 
particularly has anything to say about this, I guess. I should also add that a few of the employees are police dispatchers, and they're represented by the um, Municipal Employees Association Union, a separate union, and the head of that union also declined to comment. Now, you say many of these religious exemption requests appear to have been cut and pasted from the internet. Is that right? Yes. So that's the overall um, the overall arguments, uh, religious arguments against getting a COVID vaccine, including some that also include the testing. Um, there's a lot of different organizations uh, on the Internet that have sample form letters that say use this to uh, argue against getting a COVID vaccine. Some of them actually say don't directly copy and paste this, put it in your own words. But clearly people didn't always follow that direction. So now you have a number of SDPD officers, as you say, who haven't been vaccinated or tested for COVID interacting with the public. What kind of health threat does that pose for San Diegans? Right. Well, so, you know, as we say, um, police officers are are still on the job. They're not vaccinated and they're not necessarily being tested. Um, And I spoke with Rebecca Fielding Miller, who's an epidemiologist at UC San Diego, Um, And here's what she had to say about that. For many, many people, it's not voluntary to interact with the police. If a police officer wants to interact with you, you cannot walk away. And so if a police officer is not vaccinated, is declining testing, and is not masked, that could be a really dangerous situation for people. Right. So as she says, you know, even if you just get pulled over for a speeding ticket or something like that. You're going to roll down your window. You're going to be talking face to face with a police officer. And you really don't have anything to say. You know, you don't have any choice in that in that matter. And that's just, you know, the bottom of the of the levels of interaction. If you're being handcuffed or arrested or whatever it is, you you don't really get to choose. Oh, I'm going to walk away from from this officer. Now, it's hard to push back on what people claim are their religious beliefs, but When hospital workers chose not to be vaccinated because of their religion, many were removed from interacting with patients. Is that an option the police department could pursue? I suppose that it is. It's not something that's uh, that's being considered. Um, You know, I think the police department and the police union regularly argue that they don't actually have enough officers right now. And so I don't know if, you know, putting all of them on desk duty would, would really be an option. It's not something that I've heard either the city or, or the police union or the police department uh, considering. I've been speaking with KPBS investigative reporter Claire Trageser. Claire, thank you so much. Thank you. A group of San Diego high school students have returned from an adventure they hoped would take them 100 miles along the Pacific Crest Trail. Students from the original High Tech High wanted to bring attention to the challenge faced by asylum seekers who risked their lives for freedom and opportunity in the U.S. Joining us now are two members of the hike team that started their journey near Campo last week. Taya Chase is a ninth grade math teacher at High Tech High, and 16-year-old Allie Price is is one of her 10th grade students. Thank you both for joining us on Midday Edition. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much. Taya, I'd like to start with you. So the hike is called 100 Degrees of Freedom. What does that mean? 
100 degrees of freedom is a both a, a term used in math and in physics, meaning that the number of degrees of freedom are potentially the values in a final calculation um, in statistics that are free to vary. Or in physics, it's the direction in which independent motion can occur. Although we're not taking the 100 degrees of freedom in the literal sense, um, we're looking at 100 degrees of freedom in terms of perhaps for migrants, the degree at which they travel on foot to seek asylum. And that's why we partnered with Casa Cornelia. Their mission is to provide aid to those asylum seekers. And we hoped to provide this journey for students to experience just what migrants go through each and every day to get into this country. Allie, you were one of the brave students who tried this. Are you a hiker? Have you hiked before? I have done a little bit of hiking in the past, obviously nothing to this extreme, but I've always really enjoyed camping, kind of getting out into nature. So I've done some minor hikes, but the farthest I've gone before this was only about seven miles. And here we were doubling that every single day. So I definitely had a little bit of experience coming into it, but nothing nearly like this. So Taya, given the uh, hot temperatures that we've been experiencing, safety is has to be a priority. What did you do to prepare the students for this hike? I transferred all the knowledge I have to students through a three-hour lecture and simulation course, providing them knowledge of all wilderness first aid, anything from heat exhaustion to altitude sickness to snake bites, tick bites, and ultimately students prepared themselves by learning about the three critical body systems and how to assess patients. And so it's very important to us that not only the teacher leaders were knowledgeable about safety, but the students were able to provide aid if necessary. How many miles did you cover each day? Approximately 13 to 14 miles each day, and we concluded at mile 77. And tell me about that. What went into your decision to stop at mile 77? Mile 77 is at Scissors Crossing, which is just below Julian, California. And the time at which we got down to the desert floor, it was approximately 95 degrees. And we, you know, took cover under the bridge where there was plenty of shade and water. And we sat there for several hours and we ultimately decided that pushing on, there were no guarantees that there would be shade at the top of our next peak that we would go over. And so we worried the next day it would be over 100 degrees. So we decided that we needed to have parents come pick up the kiddos from, from then on. And Taya, what would you say is the educational value of this experience? Clearly, it was a physical challenge. What did the kids learn? What was your hope for them? This experience is very transformative. They are not only pushing through physical challenges, but emotional challenges. You have a lot of time to think while you're on the trail. So for each and every student out there, that looks a little bit different for everyone. It really is an inner dialogue that you're going through each day. And so that's the beauty of it. It's really personalized to each student and their own personal struggles. Allie, how did you prepare yourself for this journey, both physically and emotionally? I quickly realized as I was walking on that first day that nothing could truly prepare you for what we were about to do. No matter how many miles I have previously hiked or no matter what experiences I've already had. And that was definitely a struggle for me was getting into like the mindset of like, this is difficult, but we can like get through it. So Taya, this was a class assignment. You did not make it to 100 miles. You did make it to 77 miles. Was this a success? 
Absolutely. It was bittersweet to end the journey at miles. 77, just short of the 100 miles. But we are so proud of the students' efforts, collaboration. Um, everything they did out there was exceeding my expectations. And so this was more than I could have hoped for. And I am just looking forward to sharing this experience with you know all types of students in the future. Allie, what did you learn on this journey? I think the biggest thing I learned is just like privilege of realizing that like those resources and like the fact that at mile 77, we were able to say like, it's too hot for us to continue. And we had the luxury of being able to get picked up and driven like home. That's not a luxury. And that's not a resource that other people have. And so that was really the eye opener for me. And I think I knew that coming in, but actually being put into an experience was just a total like eye-opener and game-changing experience. We have been talking to Taya Chase, ninth grade math teacher at High Tech High, and her 10th grade student, Allie Price. Thank you both for being here. Thanks so much and happy trails. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking with you. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with M.G. Perez in for Jade Heineman. Some long-held and respected customs in surfing culture are crashing against social media, and the result is not pretty. Veteran surfers know that keeping the best beaches and surf spots secret is a vital part of surfing etiquette. But more and more, Instagram and other social media users are violating that code by posting the locations. Now some of the best-kept surfing secret spots are getting swamped by kooks, leaving OG surfer dudes decidedly non-stoked. Joining me is Adam Elder, San Diego writer and journalist who wrote about the social media violation of surfing culture in the New York Times. And Adam, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You start out by comparing the secrecy surrounding the best surf spots with Fight Club. Tell us about that. Right. Well, the first rule of Fight Club was you don't talk about Fight Club. And that's sort of how it goes with photographing certain waves and certain surf spots. You just don't shoot those photos, or if you shoot them, you don't name them. Traditionally in surfing, a lot of things have to be earned in the sense that you have to figure out a lot of things yourself. It's got rites of passage. It's kind of primal. There's oftentimes a pecking order out there. That attitude just kind of runs through most everything. And the way that it manifests in surf spots is that the more people there are, the worse the experience tends to be for so many reasons. And so it's just easier in many ways to keep things to yourself and also to kind of ask that others earn that information the way that fishermen, you know, hide their uh, all the best fishing holes, I guess. What are people doing now that violates uh, the longstanding tradition about keeping these spots secret? Well, for a while, surf magazines, they would obviously run lots of photos of locations, but the information that they would tell you about it was usually very little. I mean, it would just be in a photo caption. Sometimes, you know, it would just say, 
the name of the country, or it would just say California. And those places basically controlled the entire message. There was no way for someone to just pop in and change the photo caption so that everyone who reads the magazine would know exactly where it is. But that's kind of where we are with Instagram. Anyone can take a picture of anywhere and tell the world exactly where it is. And then Instagram's geotagging feature puts another wrinkle into things where, you know, it pinpoints the exact location on planet Earth where this picture was taken. Has that happened here in San Diego? Yeah, I don't go looking for this stuff, but I definitely see it. You, you see it often where there's maybe a surf media posts a photo of somewhere and you recognize the spot. And then it's almost fun to click on the comment section and scroll down because, you know, someone's going to be in there just shouting out the, the name of the location. Then, you know, that if you scroll down just a little farther, there's going to be a lot of upset people that start threatening them. And it's just It's this thing that just plays out so often online. How does outing a formerly secret surfing spot actually affect the surfing? It's not so much that a bunch of like brand new surfers are showing up there to this, you know, really difficult, really intense, you know, maybe localized spot with their Costco boards. It's more of a ripple effect where there's just so many surfers nowadays and it's making a lot of other people who surf, weekend warriors or whoever else, just want to you know, seek out new spots. And it's inevitably going to spill out into most any places that there are waves. And that's the power of a photo. You can know about those places and you can hear about those places. But when you see a photo of it, I think a lot of people think, wow, you know, you, you, you can you can picture yourself or you instantly want to picture yourself surfing on this wave that you just saw an amazing photo of. It's just kind of a numbers game, really. You write that the pandemic has sort of increased the number of surfers. Is that for real? Is that true? Oh, yeah. I mean, everyone can feel it. It's so much different now than it was in, say, 2019. Everywhere you go, it just feels more crowded than ever. I mean, it feels like summertime, but year round. And then summertime's even more crowded than, than other summertimes. Yeah, I mean, everyone complains about it. How do you make sense of that? Why would the pandemic influence the number of people who were going surfing? I assume it's just that people had free time on their hands. They don't have to go into the office as much anymore. And so it's just all over Instagram and people have free time and you know fewer responsibilities to be somewhere now post-COVID. And so I think there's just a lot of people who decided to take it up. I don't know that for a fact, but that's just my hunch. And I think that's what everyone else kind of assumed. Now, the Instagram sharers, sometimes they feel the wrath of the surfing community, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. When someone sort of breaches etiquette, I guess, if you want to call it that, there's instantly people threatening them and you know, it's the way any comment section on Instagram sort of devolves into getting doxxed or people are looking at their photos and pointing things out. It's just, it's probably an unpleasant experience and something best avoided, I assume. I don't know of too many real world instances of, of harm or things like that. I mean, you hear of it and every once in a while something makes the news, but uh, it's just generally an unpleasant experience for everyone. So despite all this, uh, did you find that some surf spot secrets are still being kept? Yeah, definitely. I think in a lot of places, including San Diego, you know, there's, there's a few spots that people get annoyed whenever they're talked about. 
So there's kind of that level. And then there's another level of, you know, places to surf that rarely are surfable because they only come alive during certain swells and things like that. And then there's places, you know, around the globe, they're in really remote locations, you know, whether they're at the end of a long unpaved road or they're, you know, some snowy beach in Alaska. But, you know, there's also places that are maybe just around the corner from a really popular place and they just require a little bit of hiking. They're everywhere. On the right day and the right conditions, you can still find uncrowded waves in the middle of the city, even San Diego. I've I've had those experiences and they're great. And honestly, those are the those are the, the moments that tend to stick with you. So they're still out there. And like someone I quoted in the story, there's people who sort of spend their lives searching for these waves. And the other people who do are so excited for them that they don't even want to know where they are in a sense. They think it's cool that they keep it to themselves and just have their own little fantasy wave to uh, fly to and travel to and surf. So, yeah, they're definitely out there. But, uh, you know, there's, there's, always, there's always new pictures being taken all the time. <laughs> you know, that's one of these things about Instagram is that there's a momentum to it where a spot is photographed and it draws people, other people to that spot to stand on the beach and photograph it. And that draws other people. And you can imagine what sort of effect that has day after day on a place. I've been speaking with San Diego writer and journalist Adam Elder about his latest article in the New York Times called The No Longer Secret World of Surf Spots. And Adam, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. 